All right, so um, we are back in First Corinthians, and so I don't have a, a New Year message, but I think this actually this message might be apt for the New Year. Um, and so, um, um, gosh, what was I going to say? Um, okay, I saw some of you guys last week at you college retreat, blah 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 blah. Um, um, okay, so uh, the, the youth college retreat uh, talked about um, being centered on the gospel, uh, the gospel in everyday life, and um, and as, as and. Honestly, I, I really um, am so thankful that Pastor Tim was uh, one of the guys that had preached on uh, the series, um, because that's actually what our series in 1 Corinthians is about. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter on what it means actually to be centered on Jesus the Messiah. And I thought that was actually such a, such a timely, great way to start uh, 2020. Um, and so the question that uh, 1 Corinthians is asking, if this is your first time here joining us, uh, the, the question that 1 Corinthians is trying to ask is, what does a life centered on Jesus, the Messiah, look like? As a high schooler, as a son or daughter, uh, as a friend, as a Christian who attends public school? Um, and I think these are pretty relevant questions for you as a high schooler. And so in our passage this evening, uh, we're given yet another look into what it means to have our lives centered upon Jesus. And so if you guys have your Bibles, um, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 18, I'm sorry, verses 14 to 22. And I assure you, by the time that Seth has graduated, no, no, yeah, he has graduated high school, um, but before he has left for college, we will actually be done with 1 Corinthians, believe it or not, I know, crazy. So um, we will be done with 1 Corinthians by the time Seth graduates. So let that be a, like a, like a, a temporal marker, okay? So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, um, it's a little bit of an intense passage, but uh, hear the word of God. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are, they, are, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of God. You know, one of my favorite movies um, is an old Chinese movie called Infernal Affairs. And who's actually, who's, who's heard of this movie before? I'm pretty sure none of you guys have. Okay, yeah. came out in the late 90s, uh, and it is a, um, a Cantonese native movie. And so I, I really don't think any of you guys have heard it. But uh, it was so popular that there was an American adaptation called The Departed, uh, featuring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Matt Damon. But Infernal Affairs tells the story of a young police officer who is chosen to become a mole for a Chinese gang. Uh, while a young member from the same gang chooses to become a mole for the same police department. Um, and so over the course of the movie, you find out that they happen to cross paths with each other without ever even knowing it. Uh, well, until later. Spoiler alert. Um, and in their 10 years of, of going undercover, their lives completely switch. Um, the, the undercover gang member rises to the top ranks of the police department, while the undercover cop finds it increasingly suffocating to live a double life with opposing interests. And there's a poignant scene near the end of the, of the movie where in a moment of self-reflection, 
um, he realized that he couldn't even tell the difference between right and wrong anymore because he had been living this double life for so long. This undercover job destroyed his relationships. It made him distrustful of others. And eventually it destroyed him because his job as a cop and his job as a gang member were completely irreconcilable and incompatible with one another. One job characterized righteousness and the other characterized uh, lawlessness. They were completely opposed to one another. And both had equal and high demands. And the crossroads that he found himself in was to either turn back to what he once was or to fully embrace what he had actually become. There is no straddling the fence. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced competing identities and the choices and decisions that each identity demands? You know, for some of us, we can't tell if we love you know, beef pho more or, or chicken pho. Uh, just kidding, maybe just one of us. Uh, but, for other, maybe, but for others of us, the, the competing identities that we face is that it is increasingly difficult to be a successful student on the one hand and a successful athlete on the other hand. Just, just an example. And I think many of us know why. Uh, to be a successful student demands just as much attention, time, and devotion as being a success successful soccer player. And I'm not talking about the possibility, but simply its costs and its difficulties. Because I know some of you are, are, are both good students and good athletes, which is just ridiculous. I was good at neither. Um, and it's certainly possible to be both at the same time, but it's super hard to be and do both. And what the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to this evening in our passage is that as a Christian, you cannot have competing interests. You cannot have any competing worship, in fact. And you cannot have any competing loves that rival Jesus himself. The longer we live as Christians, the more we find that the values of success, the approval of others, are ultimately opposed to Jesus himself. That the more we love God, the more we find that the values of our friends or even the values of success compete with our love for him. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing in our passage this evening is that he is drawing a line in the sand and showing us that if you are a Christian, you cannot straddle the fence. You cannot straddle the fence. And so our key idea for this evening is that what the Apostle Paul shows us is that a people centered on Jesus the Messiah must have an undivided loyalty to the Messiah by fleeing idolatry and by fleeing to the jealous God. By fleeing idolatry and fleeing to the jealous God. So that brings us to our first point. We must free, flee from idolatry. So take a look again at verses 14 and 15 again. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, since we've been out of 1 Corinthians for just a little bit, uh, we need to just back up for a moment to understand why the Apostle Paul is calling us to flee idolatry. Paul's discussion on idolatry actually first began in chapter 8. And so if you take a look br briefly back at chapter 8, verse 4, just put your finger in chapter 10, but just turn a few pages back to chapter 8, verse 4. I want you guys to turn there and see what Paul is doing. In verse 4, he is actually quoting a popular slogan from the Corinthians. So if you guys look at the quotes in verse 4, it says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, here it is, a quote, an idol has no real existence, and that, quote, again, there is no God but one. Now, why does the Apostle Paul quote a popular saying from the Corinthians? Well, take a look again at what he quotes. He says, an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. Now, these statements in these quotations, are, are, they, are they wrong or true statements? What do you guys think? 
Guys? True? False? True. Okay, they're true statements. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. You guys are awake. Okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with what they said. Okay? In fact, it was the right and correct answer, and it would have brought much delight and satisfaction to your small group leaders, but not to the Apostle Paul. Why? It's because the, the problem for the Corinthians was that they had used their correct theology to justify everything that they wanted to do. You guys understand that? Okay, they had a proper understanding of Scripture, of what they knew about God, and yet they applied it and justified using their theology in all sorts of ways. Okay? They had used their theology to justify their liberty at the expense of charity. Okay? They had used their theology to justify their liberty at the expense of charity. The issue for Paul wasn't that the Corinthians had a right theology of idolatry, but that their theology of idolatry led them to eat whatever they wanted at the risk of stumbling younger and unformed Christians. Does that make sense? You guys follow along? Yeah? Okay. What this means is that just because we can do something, and I think I mentioned this before, is that just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do it. Possibility does not mean permissibility. Okay? Love, not freedom, is what must govern all that we do. The difference between love and freedom is that freedom mainly thinks about yourself while love actually thinks about the other person. And sometimes it's actually the most theologically astute, the most polished Christian, the person who is the most familiar with Jesus, the person who knows all the correct and right answers, they're actually happen to be the ones who are the most apathetic to the simplest commands of God, to love God and to love neighbor. And it was in light of this context that Paul now calls the Corinthians to flee from idolatry, not only because it is a consideration out of love for other people now, but a consideration into what the problem, the real problem of idolatry is. Okay? Why? It's because as good as their theology of idolatry was, as non-existent as idols were, their understanding of idolatry was still incomplete and unformed because they had misunderstood the power that non-existent idols can have over us. Take a look back at verses 19 to 20 of chapter 10. You guys following along? Does it make sense so far? You guys tracking? Yeah? No, you're not tracking, Davis? Okay, I just saw you shaking your head, so I just need to make sure. Okay, verses 19 and 20. Okay, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, what the Apostle Paul, what, what is he even saying in these four verses? The Apostle Paul gives us two reasons why we must flee idolatry. The first reason is that, we, is, is that because we might not like what we worship. We might not like what we worship. Now, let's consider this question um, or this idea uh, that actually Pastor Tim had kind of elaborated on at the retreat. But when you worship idols, okay, when you pursue something as more important than God himself, that's what an idol is, when you, when you find all of your hope and satisfaction and identity in what others think of you, when you devote all of your time, attention to your phone, your grades, uh, your friends, what you're actually giving worship to, what you're actually giving allegiance to, what you're actually giving loyalty to, isn't ultimately an idol, idol an inanimate object like your phone or your, or your money or your time or your grades or your boyfriend or girlfriend. What you're actually giving your worship, your devotion, your allegiance to is actually, according to these two verses, demons. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that when we worship idols, we are actually linking arms with the evil one. You guys understand? Make sense? 
And the Apostle Paul is asking us, are you aware even of what you're worshiping? This is an aspect of idolatry that we just don't, I don't think really talk about. I don't think really the Lighthouse really elaborated on too much. How does the Apostle Paul develop this idea? Well, he develops it by comparing worship with the Lord's Supper. Take a look at verses 16 and 18. Just a few verses above that. Verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now Paul's argument, you have to understand just really quickly, if I can just get your attention really quickly. Okay, Paul's argument hinges on the fact that when we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus really is actually present there. Okay, so on Sundays, when we take the Lord's Supper together, communion, okay, when we actually take the, 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 the juice, I was going to say bread, uh, the wine, uh, but when we take the juice and the bread, Jesus is actually literally present with us. Not in the elements, but he's present spiritually, okay? If we don't understand that, otherwise this argument will not make sense, okay? So just as Jesus is really present as we gather together as the church, just as Jesus is really present as we gather to worship him, just as Jesus is really present as we take communion, just as Jesus is really present as we sit under the word of God and as we pray and sit under the word of God uh, in our devotions, so also are demons present when we worship our idols. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Does it make sense? Makes sense. Okay, if this is true, then the other has to be true too. Okay, makes sense? In other words, if Jesus is present when we worship him, demons are present when we worship false gods. Okay, so, so now actually the Apostle Paul is, is upping the ante in the problem of idolatry. It isn't just the fact that idolatry is, is, is neutral or they're good gifts. There are, they are good gifts usually. But what we actually fail to realize is that what stands behind idolatry is demon worship itself. Okay? Demons are present when we worship false gods. Make sense? In fact, put your finger, it's a bit more uh, Bible flipping today. Put your finger in 1 Corinthians. And briefly turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17. Just to show you know that it's not the Apostle Paul who's making up these words himself. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. He quotes from Moses. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17. And I'm going to get to the application in just a second. But I need you guys to really understand the theology behind this in order to get to the application. Okay, guys? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17. This is what Moses says as he recounts the history of Israel wandering through the wilderness. And this is what he says, okay, verses 16, uh, verses, um, actually we'll just start in verse 17. He says, they sacrificed, okay, Israel, the earlier generations of Israel sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Okay, does this make sense? Okay, so we know that an idol is nothing, okay? An idol is just an inanimate object um, that typically people have created in their own hands. That object in and of itself is, is meaningless. But we have to understand the deep spiritual powers behind that idol. That's what Moses is trying to say here. Does it make sense? Is that we, when we actually sacrifice to idolatry, when we, when we worship idols, we're actually worshiping and sacrificing, as, as Moses says, and as Paul quotes, to demons, this is what the Apostle Paul, so turn back to 1 Corinthians. This is what the Apostle Paul is bringing to our attention. And this is what he wants us to see when we consider the false promises and lies 
of our idols. How are we convinced of idol worship? How, how, how do the false promises and lies of our idols work? Well, let's just consider it for a second. When, when Eve was tempted in the Garden of Eden, notice what was happening. The, the serpent used a harmless good gift of God, like the fruit, to introduce Eve to a web of lies, insecurities, doubts, dissatisfaction, and false promises. And that little fruit contained all the warped and twisted hopes and dreams of Eve. Does that make sense? If you eat this fruit and disobey God, then you will be like him. That was the promise. If you participate in this activity, then you will be well-liked. If you turn toward this relationship, then you will be satisfied. If you have their approval, then you will be secure. If you get into this school, then you will have enough. Notice the promises that the evil one entices us with, with good gifts. Okay? The way that the evil one and his demons work is that they entice us and feed us lies through the ordinary and mundane idols that we worship. Okay, food, friends, family, bless you. Clothing, good grades, calling acceptances are all good gifts of God. But what the serpent, serpent aims to do is to twist these good gifts in such a way that if you had these gifts from God, then you wouldn't need God at all. That is what this, the evil one is trying to do. What the evil one and demons dare you to believe through idolatry is that God is not enough. If demons can entice you to believe that God is not enough and, they, and, and that you have to turn somewhere else instead, then their job is done. And what we're actually worshiping, when we obsess over clothing, when we crave the attention of others, when we desire the approval of others, when we want more time on our phones, isn't actually the thing itself, but how it makes us feel. What you have to understand is that idols represent not only that which gives us meaning and hope, but that which makes us feel like we have enough. Right? I mean, have you ever thought about that before? It's the reason why the chief promise of idolatry is that you will feel like you have enough. If I just have this, then I will be satisfied. Then I will, my, my life is good. My life will be good enough. You know, if you look and listen hard enough, you'll hear that the word enough turns up in nearly every conversation, in relationships, in school, in appearances, in accomplishments, in sports. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, to be smart enough, to be happy enough, fast enough, athletic enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, good enough. It's the reason why Jesus equates idolatry with thirst. It's the sensation of never feeling like we have enough. You know, just a couple of days ago, I was rewatching uh, Up in the Air, and I might have mentioned it before in uh, one of our earlier messages in First Corinthians, but this movie um, is about this guy named Ryan Bingham, uh, played by George Clooney. And, uh, and Ryan works for an agency that helps companies fire their employees. Okay, So uh, there, this job flies Ryan all over the country as he steps in place of employers and does the dirty work of firing their employees. And so I'm like, man, like these employers are like terrible. Anyway, but the movie is, is less about his job and more about what the job allows Ryan to do and to be. Okay, Ryan has shed all of his attachments as he travels on airplanes and lives on airplanes and is at home at airports. Uh, but Ryan's ultimate quest and dream is to be a million-mile flyer. Okay, in fact, he has a side hustle 
as a motivational speaker where he convinces anyone willing to listen to shed everything that holds them back. And when he does uh, his seminars, he brings along a gimmicky prop. He brings a, a backpack filled with all the things that weigh us down, especially sticky entanglements like relationships, friendships, and love. And so Ryan counsels up-in-the-air independence. But when his assistant finally him, challenges him with the question, what do you want? What do you really want? Bingham doesn't even know how to respond back to her. Near the end of the movie, Bingham finally does reach his life goal, the million-miler status, and he does reach the top. The only problem was that there is nothing there at the top. Just just a a handshake from the the pilot of the plane, and that was it. You see, in, in Ryan's mind, what he had thought he wanted was completely different from what he actually got instead. I think many of us are so sure of what we want, and yet what we want turns out to be actually great disappointments. We're sure that we want success, and yet all that success makes us want is just more success. I don't know if you guys ever felt that way before. We're sure that we want the approval of others, and yet all that approval makes us want is just more of it. We're we're so sure of what we want in our idolatry, and yet we find so so many diminishing returns in it. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why so many parents push their kids to excel in all these different things, in all these different activities and extracurriculars. It's one of the reasons why we convince ourselves to get involved in this activity and to participate in this thing. I think in theory, we convince ourselves that we'll become more well-rounded individuals, but I think in reality, it's because we and our parents want to be protected from the possible disappointment that we, may face if, uh, that we may face if we get into something that we thought we'd like, but actually didn't. I, let me rephrase that. One of the things I think, one of the reasons why I think we get into all these different things, hobbies, activities, friendships, whatever it is, we think in our minds that it's because it'll make us a well-rounded Christian, a, a well-rounded individual. But in reality, I really think it's actually because of the fact that it is a, it is a defense mechanism to protect us from the possible disappointment that we might have if any of those things don't work out for us. Does it make sense? Our American lives demonstrate that there is no threshold for what's enough. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. You know, J.D. Rockefeller is considered to be the wealthiest American of all time. At one point, he was the, the world's wealthiest man. Um, and he was definitely by far the richest person in modern history. And he, more or less, with his wealth, created the modern world. And when John Rockefeller was asked how much money is enough, Mr. Rockefeller simply re- replied, just a little more. We are simply, as, as, as Americans, I think, we are, we are getting crushed on the, under the torture of the fantasy self that we're failing to become. And the fantasy self that our culture, our church, or even our family members project upon us. And the question that I have to ask you is, is this what we want? Is this what you want? Because this is where idolatry will lead you. Never feeling like you have enough. Is that what you want? The question that the Apostle Paul is asking is, is that what you want? That brings us to the second reason why we must flee from idolatry. The second reason why we must flee from idolatry is because we might not like what we become. We might not like what we become. 
I took a look back at verses, uh, or verses 20 to 21. Verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What the Apostle Paul is teaching is that if we participate with the Lord through communion, it is just as possible that we participate with demons through idol worship. That's just what we had mentioned. Now, what does it mean, actually, to be a participant with demons? The Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses for participants is a very familiar word that I think we all know. The word koinonia, okay, the word that we normally translate for fellowship. Here, in this instance, it is translated as participants. In all of the New Testament usages, the word refers to a sharing in the same condition and likeness. So, for example, sharing the same faith. Uh, sharing the same family, sharing the same likeness, sharing in a commonality, okay? So just as Christians participate and share in the divine nature through Jesus, so also Christians actually can participate and share in the demonic nature of demons. You guys catch that? One commentator writes that by worshiping idols, we become participants with demons and reflect the unspiritual, ungodly nature of the demonic realm. Another commentator writes that what one worships brings the worshiper into intimate contact with and under the powerful influence of the object of worship, whether that object is Christ or demons. What's the TLDR? It means that we become what we worship. We become what we worship. When we worship Jesus, we become like him. And when we worship idols, we become like the demons that stand behind them. When we worship Jesus, we become and reflect the likeness of Jesus. But when we worship demons, or actually we should, I should say when we worship idols, and demons stand behind those idols, we actually become and reflect the likeness of the demons. That is the reality of what's happening as we worship idolatry. I wish our counseling classes talked about that more. This demonic realm as we worship idolatry. Maybe that's another reason for why we should not pursue idolatry. If you put your finger again, sorry, I'm sorry, guys. If you put your finger back in uh, 1 Corinthians again and take a look at Psalm 115, okay, Psalm 115. This is what the psalmist says in verses 4 to 8. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. This is what the psalmist writes. He says in verses 4 to 8. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Okay, they're, they're nothing, okay? They're just made from, from human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And do not, they do not make a sound in their throat. Now take a look at what verse 8 says. It says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Okay, so you don't even have to make these idols for you to actually become like them. Because if you trust in them, you will be like them. You will be dumb, deaf, and mute, just like these idols are. Those who trust in idols become the idols that they worship. I think we can all intuitively relate to this experience. Let me just give you an example. If we, if we spend 10 minutes doing daily devotions in bitterness, as Pastor Kim likes to say, should it surprise us that we become the kind of bitter person that our bitterness reveals us to be? If we spend 10 minutes on our Instagram every morning, should it surprise us that we become the kind of people that we actually follow? 
If we spend time indulging in and reflecting on the worthlessness of our idols, should it surprise us that we become as worthless as the, the idols themselves? In other words, we can trace our worship back to our habits and daily routines. If you want to know what you worship, okay, take an audit of your daily habits, routines, and practices. Just, just take a look at in your daily schedule. Do you what, what do you find yourself often doing? What do you find that occupies your, your time, attention, devotion, your mind? And how do you talk about these things? Like when you're talking about it with other people, do you get self-defensive talking about it? How do you justify some of these practices even? And what we come to find is that our everyday habits, practices, and even rituals, unconscious or not, reveal what we love and what we worship. And they also shape what we love and worship as well. Does it make sense? Okay, worshiping idols isn't just this linear progression where we trust in something other than God and it motivates our behavior. That, like that, that's a very linear progression and that, that, that's certainly true. But what also happens when we worship idols is that the more we worship our idols, the more our behaviors actually fuel our idolatry. Does it make sense? Like the, the more we spend our time doing it, the more we actually find ourselves fixating upon it more and more. The more our behaviors fuel our idolatry what we think and care about. Worshiping idols is like this huge, this huge feedback loop where we voluntarily choose what we love, but we are also enslaved by what we choose to love as well. Does this make sense? You guys follow along? Okay, I'm going to draw this feedback loop in just a second when I'm done. Uh, otherwise, it's just too much time. Um, worshiping Jesus is the same. Okay, it's the, it's the exa- exact opposite when we worship idols. Worshiping Jesus is exactly the same. The more we trust in Jesus, the more his love, his reality, and his life shapes how we live. That should make sense. But the the reality also, too, is that the more we worship Jesus, what also happens is that our behaviors, shaped by that love of Jesus, shapes our behaviors and our daily habits. And those daily habits shape and fuel our love for Jesus. Does it make sense? It's It's a recurring feedback loop over and over again. In other words, if we spend more and more time focusing, worshiping Jesus, thinking his thoughts after him, we will be like him. And as we become more like him, it actually shapes our love for him more and more. Does it make sense? Make sense? It's a feedback loop. A really tangible example of this is the use of our time. For the Israelites and even for Christians, God has woven specific rituals and practices into the fabric of our daily lives and worship like the Sabbath, in ways that we aren't even conscious of so that we would not forget God. Okay, that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Now, how many of you guys use some kind of calendar to keep track of, you know, dates, events, times? Okay, I think most of us probably do. Um, okay, Google Calendar is my life. Okay, like, so if I, somehow, like, I got locked out of Google for whatever reason, I have, two, I have like, two-step authenticator, so I sh- should not. Um, anyway, if I, or if I were to somehow lose it, like, I would, I don't know what I would do. Um, but, um, but I... Or I should, I should say, Megan uh, determines what goes on the calendar, okay? Uh, the, or the day, or the week, or the month. Uh, the only, the only structured thing in my calendar is that empty box, okay? That empty box on, you know, January sixteenth, and I determine everything else that goes into that box on that day. And part of my daily habit of putting things on my calendar unconsciously reminds me that I am actually the master of my own time. I am the, mo- I am the master of my own, my own days. And my own free time. Nothing and no one else decides it for me except me. 
And so what the calendar even so subtly reveals is that I am the master of my own fate and destiny. And, you know, I think, I think for high schoolers, like, time is a hot commodity for all you guys. Because you can be spending free time studying or sleeping or hanging out with friends or really just doing nothing. Like, that's a rare commodity for all you guys, time. And yet, so many of us are not aware of what we do actually with our time and how we devote our time to certain things. Does that make sense? And so God, what he does is he installs things like the Sabbath to remind his creation and his people that they are not in control of their lives. God is. A day off, sleep, rest, is is meant to remind me, at least, that I do not run God's universe. It's the reason why, in its purest form, keeping the Sabbath was to submit to the sovereignty and the kingdom of God in your life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when, that then that time is, a, is the primary currency of our worship, okay? The amount and quality of time that we give our attention to, whether it's sports, the news, video games, your homework, boys or girls, or God, reveals what you love and shapes what you love. What you put on your calendar consciously or not reveals who is master in that situation. Does it make sense? You just follow along? You know, going back to the undercover cop in my, in my opening illustration, even though he was a cop, he had spent his mid-20s into his mid-30s immersed in a drug lifestyle that was completely at odds with his convictions as a police officer. The, the gang and drug culture uh, was the air that he breathed for mo- most of his life. And the reason why he grew increasingly depressed and conflicted was because he was turning into someone that he didn't want to become. The problem with idolatry is that we turn into someone or something that on the one hand makes us completely unrecognizable and on the other hand reveals who we were all along. The reality is that we do like what we worship and we actually do like what we become. And this is, this is who we are. The reality is that we are actually participants with demons more than we would actually like to believe. And God has a response. That brings us to our second point, our final point. We must flee to the jealous God. We must flee to the jealous God. Let's take a look finally at verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now there's a story that I heard of where a woman, just after her her wedding day, having covenanted and promised to her husband that she would commit her life to him, she began sleeping with other guys while also taking her husband's money as she lived on her own. And, you know, I think we all intuitively know that this is super whack. You know, like, like if, we, if you knew some guy from school was cheating on his girlfriend or even by, or vice versa, you knew swift justice would come. Now, what if this woman's name was, was actually Gomer? What if this woman's name was, was Israel? What if this woman's name was the church? What if this woman's name was, was you and me? You know, I guess I kind of tricked you guys because... Um, I was just actually quoting a, um, a passage from Hosea, but it was a true story. And the reality, the sad reality, it is actually our story as well. The reality is that all of us have cheated on God. Is that we have actually, as, as a Christian, you have covenanted and committed yourself to the living God, the God who would supply you every single satisfying need. And on that wedding day, you leave him for something else. That is what we have done in our idolatry. That is ultimately what idolatry is. It is 
when we prefer the gifts of the giver over the giver of life. When we have done that, we have not only committed demonic worship, but we've also committed spiritual adultery. You don't have to be an adulterer to know what spiritual adultery is like. If you don't understand the relationship that you have with God, then you won't understand why Paul says that idolatry provokes the Lord to jealousy. The reason why, again, is because as Christians, we have covenanted with Jesus. In other words, he is the groom and we are the bride. The the best way to, to describe our relationship with God is through the analogy of marriage. That's the closest thing to understanding our relationship with God. And in our idolatry, we have spurned the love of God and and pursued false loves and false gods. And and we need to to reckon with this. Like this is like the Apostle Paul, I I think it's easy for us, like as we're reading this passage, like, oh yeah, like demons, like, ah, like, you know, like, you know, like red tight, you know, pitchfork, you know, like with horns kind of guy. But this is reality. Like the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that we have actually spurned the living God, and spat in his face. In our idolatry, we rightfully do deserve the jealous and just wrath of God to spend an entire eternity away from his loving presence. This is our spiritual condition, and this is our spiritual destiny. And yet this is what God says in the same passage in Hosea. He says in Hosea chapter 11, he says in verses 8 to 9, he says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the faithful God comes to us again and again. And the only reason why he can come to us like this, not in wrath, is because he has actually come in in Jesus. So Jesus actually has climbed down a ladder and saw the idolatry that we had committed ourselves to. And he actually went to the cross and would die for you and me. He would die for our rebellion and he would himself take the wrath of God for us. It's the reason why Yahweh here can say, how can my heart give you up. It's because my wrath was exhausted on my son. This is what Jesus has done for you. And the question is, how can we turn away from this gracious God? How can we, how can we betray Jesus like this? How can I betray Jesus like this? And at the cross, God through his son is, is wooing you and he's beckoning you Christian or not, to come to your, the fullest of your satisfaction in him. Jesus says in John 4 that whoever comes to me, the fountain of living waters, will not thirst again. This is Jesus, the lover of our souls. He wants you to see that in him, he is your end. He is your, he is your purpose. He is your destiny. He is your life, your identity, your meaning, your peace, your joy, your happiness. He is your home. God is our highest good, not his gifts. That's what the Latin phrase summum bonum means. That's the sermon title for our message. It's the Latin for the highest good, 
God is our highest good. You know, over our glorious three-week break, I had some time to do some, uh, some reading, and uh, I had a chance to read Augustine's Confessions. And if you're not familiar with the book, it's pretty much his spiritual diary and autobiography. But the story of Augustine is that he had spent most of his childhood and adult life roaming from city to city in search of happiness, only to find that his pursuit of joy always just kept receding and receding and receding. He just could never find the happiness that he was looking for his entire life. His, old, his search has always come short. And as I was reading through uh, his confessions, what I came to realize that what that his pursuit of happiness was actually just a pursuit of, of restfulness, of this idea of having enough, of being satisfied. You see, Augustine was, was always dissatisfied, no matter how much public opinion he had earned. He was always discontented, no matter how many women he had slept with. He was always restless, no matter how comfortable his life was. And at the end of all of his searching, it was because he realized that there was no true rest, no true enoughness, no true happiness apart from God. And these are, these are the words that made him famous. He says, because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But you see, his confessions ultimately wasn't his story about how he found God, but how God found him. It was, it was always, always was God's pursuit of him, the jealous God, the jealous love of God. You know, there's an old hymn that says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. This is what God's jealousy does. It, it pursues us and it carries us home. So let's turn our gaze to Jesus, and may we never look away. Let's pray. God, that is our hope, that we would not look away. You are the fountain of living waters, and yet often, God, so often we do run toward broken cisterns. And so, God, we need your help to see the devastation of our idolatry, to see what the, the, the disgustingness, the disgusting nature of what idolatry does and what it actually points us to. But that you would help us see our faithful and great Savior, Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to turn our gaze upon him and that we would never look away, finding our hope, our satisfaction, our joy, finding enough in him. God, we thank you. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.